thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Shift Worker with your host, Audra Starkey. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. My name is Audra Starkey and I'm here to help you to manage some of the toughest challenges we face whilst working 24-7. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking all things to do with mindfulness and circadian rhythms with Dr. Greg Murray from Melbourne in Australia. Professor Greg Murray is Head of Psychosociological Sciences and Statistics at Swinburne University of Technology in Australia and is a practicing clinical psychologist, a fellow of the Australian Psychological Society and is involved nationally with the training and accreditation of clinical psychologists. His major research interest is in the chronobiology of mood, especially the relationships between sleep, circadian function and positive mood states. And internationally, along with Dr. Erin Michalik, who I interviewed on a podcast earlier this year, Greg is also a founding member of the Canadian Crest Group, which is based in Vancouver and investigates factors which affect the well-being in people with bipolar disorder. He also collaborates with colleagues at UC Berkeley, Harvard, Yale and the University of Massachusetts on studies of sleep, circadian rhythms and mood. And if all that doesn't keep him busy enough, he has a completely different life off campus as a drummer, uh, which I'm really keen to learn more about too. So to tell us more about mindfulness and circadian rhythms, I'd like to give a warm, healthy shift worker welcome to Greg. Thanks very much. It's, It's a great pleasure to be talking to you, Audra. Thank you. Look, it's, it's, um, you know, thank you so much for joining me today, Greg, because when Erin suggested I get in touch with you to discuss all things to do with mindfulness and that you're actually based in Melbourne, I just knew I had to, you know, track you down. Plus, you've done loads of research on circadian rhythms and how these can affect our mood, which is something shift workers, you know, really do struggle with every day uh, because of our sleep deprived lifestyle. So I'm really looking forward to getting your insights. But firstly, I'd love to hear your story, Greg. Like how did you get started in clinical psychology and what led you down the path of circadian rhythm research, mood disorders and mindfulness? Well, that's a long story. Um, uh, So I did uh, my undergraduate degree at Melbourne University and um, then at that point decided that I wasn't much interested in pursuing psychology, which is what I majored in. And so I became a professional musician until I was in my early 30s. And then when I had children, uh, I thought that night gig isn't going to support my family. So I (laughs) cranked up the day job and went and did a master's in clinical psychology, which to my great surprise was a training in being a clinical psychologist. I, I, had, I hadn't read the brochure. I, I thought it was going to be about uh, sort of a more academic uh, understanding of psychopathology and well-being, but it turned out to give me the, the working certificate for being a psychologist. Uh-huh. Um, and then I went and got a job at Melbourne University as both an academic and a clinical psychologist. And... My boss at that time said, you know, you really should do a PhD, otherwise you're not going to have a career in academia. And so I did my PhD on winter depression, uh, which was a a diagnosis that I was very, very sceptical about and I I remain very sceptical about. Um, But what I took from that, I published quite a bit of stuff on that, largely sceptical stuff about it, 
But what I took from that was something I was very interested in, was which is that one of the mechanisms that people have proposed is involved in winter depression is a circadian mechanism. Uh, and because of my sort of fundamental interest in rhythms and, and my my very strong value that there's something really healthy for people about having a good solid pulse in their life, I was very attracted to the idea that uh, mood problems arise from some sort of biological instability in a system that works by generating this 24-hour rhythm of engagement and disengagement, engagement in the daytime, disengagement at night. The circadian system is designed to do that. And I thought, that is a cool idea. That's what a drummer does. <laughs> a drummer does exactly the same thing. A drummer sits at the back of the stage, pushes out a steady pulse, and on top of that, people can, you know, sing the lyrics or play their solos. But there's something fundamental about that underpinning rhythm which enables more complex and, and, and interesting stuff to happen. And I, so I got very engaged with this notion of the circadian system because it seems to me that's exactly what nature has designed is a system that keeps us in track or in sync with day and night. And if there's some problem with that synchronisation, we are vulnerable to all sorts of mood and motivational problems. And then the mindfulness stuff came in much more recently. So through my work with uh, bipolar disorder, I've got interested in psychological therapies for bipolar disorder. And basically the work I do with Erin Mahalik in Canada is, is work where we our network has clinicians, researchers, and consumers, people with bipolar disorder. And the people with bipolar disorder very strongly were saying to us, everyone else is being offered mindfulness. Why aren't we? And so uh, we said, yeah, good point. And, and we have developed a mindfulness-based intervention for people with bipolar disorder, which we've piloted and now the NHMRC, the, the big uh, government funding agency here in Australia, has funded us to do a, a large international randomised controlled trial of this intervention. Great. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that, that's for sure. Just going back to your the winter depression, Greg, this is, I guess in this context you're kind of referring to the likes of SAD, that, you know, seasonal affective disorder, which would be, I would imagine, extremely prevalent in the likes of people who live in Canada uh, and Alaska and so forth. Yeah, though not as <laughs> this is where my scepticism is coming out. Sure. Um, yep. So, uh, yes, you're exactly right. Seasonal affective disorder is proposed to be a variant of recurrent depression where people have oh. multiple episodes of depression that are reliably tied to wintertime. Right. That's, that's exactly right. That's what I'm referring to. The question is whether that is as distinct a form of depression as the proponents of that diagnosis would have us believe. And one of the core assumptions of under, underpinning that diagnosis is the condition will be, as you say, more prevalent the further we are from the equator, right? So the further we are from the equator, the more marked is seasonal variation in daylight, which is the proposed trigger mm. for winter depression, 
And in fact, the data on that, what's called the latitude hypothesis of winter depression, is not strong. And there are all sorts of other uh, uh, sort of predictions from from the idea of that diagnosis that also don't hold up so strongly. So in fact, many people nowadays, I think, would agree with me in saying that just because someone has a depression in winter time doesn't mean that we can reduce that depression to a problem of lack of light. Uh, probably like other types of depression, there will be biological, psychological and social factors in that depression. And so we don't want to overstate the association with winter. Um, and that's what many people now think, that maybe the association with winter was overstated. Mm, okay, fascinating. I mean, I can only say from personal experience and, you know, I'm, it's currently winter here in Australia, as you know, and I'm up in Queensland and I think it's about 27 degrees in <laughs> Brisbane at the moment. The sun <laughs> is just pouring through my window. It's just wonderful. And I know that when I, you know, I'm definitely a cold frog. I'm not a winter person at all. And I know that I definitely, my mood does feel as though I, you know, I kind of, I just, just don't like winter but I think mm-hmm. it's yeah it's probably just you know all in my head and fortunately I don't you know live in you know the likes of a place that does you know get limited light uh because I'm a bit definitely a bit of a sunshine girl but you know I guess that's where why we're all very different well a lot of us are and something like 30 or 40 percent of the Australian population will say they tend to feel worse in winter and yep. to, some, to some extent they're probably right but to some extent, they're probably also just think, thinking of sort of an archetypal winter's day. Yeah. But actually thinking more about weather yes. than seasons. Yes, for so sure. I'm, I'm sure we could think of days between July and August where you had very, very excited, happy times and we could explore December through February and I'm sure there's been many times in your life where you've been down or flat or things haven't gone so well in those months. Um, but yeah, in, in many people would say my preference in terms of uh, weather conditions is sunshine. Uh, many many people would would say that. In fact, people who are prone to mood disorders particularly say that they're very sensitive to uh, sunshine as such. But sunshine is uh, uh, and how much sunshine is getting into our eyes has only a very weak correlation with seasons, of course, as you've just described. Mm, yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, look, Greg, you featured on an episode of Catalyst, which is a television program um, here in Australia, and you were talking about the body clock. So are you able just to explain you know, to our listeners what exactly are circadian rhythms and how important are they to our health? Because as human beings, we're essentially walking clocks in a way, aren't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and it's not just us, it's every species on the planet. Mm. Um, and and, and the, the story kind of goes like this. Evolution has uh, noticed that one of the most important features of the environment, you know, every species is adapted by evolution to uh, function best and, and in, in the particular environment that it lives in. But on this particular planet, one of the defining features of the environment is the 24-hour light-dark cycle. So if we think about the environment at you know, 11 a.m., 
it's very, very different to the environment at 11 p.m. Yeah. You know, it's yep. completely different. And so every species has adapted a clock because nature has worked out that the change from light to dark is just too important to react to. Instead, every species predicts it. And that's why we have a clock inside us. It's to predict that critical change in the environment. No species would survive if it got surprised every day by the sun going down or coming up, depending on whether it's nocturnal or diurnal species. Mm. And so that's why we, along with every other species, has a clock that does this job for us. Um, and interestingly, we know a lot about this biological clock because it hasn't changed much across evolution. So, in fact, we know a lot about the human biological clock right from the genetic level up because it's very, very similar to the biological clock in flies and in your cat and in your daisies and in oh, your wow. dog. Okay. It hasn't changed much over yep. evolution. So, in fact, a uh, very famous paper in Nature about 15 years ago now said, here's a way to understand biological processes, guys. Copy what we've done in the study of the biological clock. We actually know an enormous amount about it. That's one of its very attractive features. In human beings, the, this, this clock I'm talking about is uh, the, the primary uh uh, driver or the, the, the orchestrator of the clock or the conductor is located deep in the brain, uh, sort of in between the eyes. If you're pointing between your eyes and going a few centimetres, that's where the heart of your clock is. But as, as you said, Audra, in fact, the whole body has, uh, has timing processes. Every cell in the body has time processes mm. that are orchestrated by that central clock in the suprachiasmatic nucleus between the eyes. And so every process in the body is timed. So remember I said that the clock is primarily adapted to predict sunrise and sunset, that that is the case. But, of course, all the different physiological processes and psychological processes in human beings need to be appropriately timed. So they are also the, the internal coordination of physiological processes is also managed by this clock system or the circadian system. It's a funny word, circadian. It's, it's spelled C-I-R-C-A, circa, meaning about, D-I-A-N, meaning day, and it refers to the fact, and this was one of the really fascinating uh, findings in about the 1940s and 50s when we started to take this system seriously. One of the fascinating fi findings about the, the circadian system in, in humans in particular is it doesn't tick away at exactly 24 hours. Now, what's exciting about that is once you find a biological system that isn't ticking at exactly 24 hours, this confirms that it's uh, a clock that's endogenous, that is, it's coming from inside the body, because, of course, in the environment, all the rhythms are exactly 24 hours, right? The cycle of day and night is pretty much exactly 24 hours. Our lifestyles are pretty much exactly 24 hours. Mm. So if you found the body operating on a rhythm that was exactly 24 hours, 
you'd be very hard pressed to prove that the body wasn't just reacting to the environment. When they discovered that no, in fact, in humans and many species, species the clock ticks away reliably, but not at exactly 24 hours. In humans, it's slightly more than 24 hours. You think, oh my goodness, that's a genuine clock that's sitting there, and the and it gets adjusted each day to synchronise with the 24-hour environment, which again is another very interesting feature of this system. It's open to the environment. It's an intelligent system, which is why uh, people who have vulnerable circadian clocks, like people with bipolar disorder, need to lead very stable social lives to keep their clock in trained appropriately. If they lead unstable daily lives, their clock vulnerability starts to show itself. Mm, actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that about it uh, it's not being exactly 24 hours because I remember reading a bit of research on that too and I just, yeah, I thought that's fascinating uh, yeah. because our whole society is just yeah. driven by this exact 24-hour you know, system. Yeah. This is what proves it's endogenous, which is a really important word in yeah. coming from the inside. Yeah. And the other important thing about the circadian system, of course, I'm, I'm talking as if it's this, you know, really important, pervasive, fundamental biological system. And some of your listeners might be thinking, well, if it's so important, how come I don't notice it? But the reason you don't notice it is it's normally entirely in sync with the sleep-wake cycle. So you don't actually notice its behaviour. Mm. But there is one very obvious situation where we do notice it, and that's jet lag. Yeah. And shift workers. Well, that's the second one, exactly. <laughs> yeah. where, where we notice that our lifestyle is not in sync with what our body is telling us to do. That's when it becomes very obvious. I think it's more vivid in jet lag, perhaps, because with shift, shift workers, many other things are changing you know, it's a more long-term thing. I, I agree with you. It, it absolutely is an issue of synchronisation between the lifestyle and what the body clock's telling you. But it's perhaps not so in your face as the experience you have when you, say, fly to New York and you've been up for 30 hours and you haven't slept much and you're really tired and you go to bed in the hotel and you're wide awake and that's because your body is still on Australian time in our case. Um that's a very in-your-face experience where people say, I don't understand what's going on here. The complete answer to that is the body clock is telling you that you're meant to be awake. With shift workers, yes, I agree, but many of their, there's no doubt that many of the psychological and physical challenges of shift work are due to this desynchronisation between the body clock and the lifestyle. But perhaps there are lots of other things going on and so the longer periods of time, so it's not so obvious to me. Yeah, I think to some point we we almost, well, you never get used to working shift work. I've did it for 20 years, but you kind of just learn to adapt to it the best that you can and that, that feeling of fatigue and tiredness mm. um, and that foggy brain just mm. becomes the norm and exactly. you kind of don't know any different. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. it's... Um, exactly. well, what shift work did you do? Uh, I worked for, uh, in the airline industry, I worked for Qantas for 13 years and ANSET prior to that and another airline before that. So, oh, in, in what sort of role? Uh, ground staff at the airport oh. and training oh. and development, yeah. So, 
Um, oh, and, I, and plus I've got a lot of shift working friends. Uh, mm. My sister's a nurse, uh, mm. so she did, has obviously done a lot of night shift and that mm. alone is a completely <laughs> different, you know, yeah. it's permanent kind of jet lag. Exactly. Uh, you know, doing things like that. So, yeah. But, Greg, look, in the last um, two years or so as part of, um, you know, my nutritional medicine degree, I'm an ad- undergraduate at the moment, I've been doing a lot of research specifically on shift work health because it's my passion. And I have to say the more that I read, the more that my heart sinks because shift workers are just prone to so many chronic conditions or comorbidities. And something which came to my attention is that shift workers are always stressed. And by that, I mean our bodies are biologically stressed. And that's before we've even set foot into a stressful workplace. Are you able to go into more detail on this and explain to our listeners exactly what's happening to our bodies when we're up and a Round and about at 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, I think there there are two issues, and and so I'm glad that we've already defined the circadian system mm. um, because one of them is circadian. So yeah, if, if your whole if the whole organism has been adapted through evolution to be active in the daytime and pretty much disengaged at nighttime. Yeah, and all of the internal processes of the body are similarly synchronised for that. So, for example, you know, digestion mm. and, and appetite and yeah. all, 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 all the other fundamental processes, but also cognition and mood and, and desire to be connected to other people. So all those different levels of function. If, if millennia of evolution has primed you to be expressing those things in a particular rhythm, which has basically activation or engagement during the daylight hours, disengagement during the dark hours. If you try and engage during the nighttime hours, you are sort of um, you're handicapping yourself. You, you know, many of the intricate ways that your body and its physiology and and your psychology have been adapted, you're fighting against it. So we're sort of starting in a deficit position to start with, just in terms of how the whole organism is primed to operate at its best. So that's that's the first thing, that you're um, giving up, you know, all the expertise that evolution has built into your body Mm -hmm. about managing the complexity of being a human being. You're, you're, you're giving that away. But then the second thing, of course, is sleep itself. Mm. Now, people often confuse us. Unless you've sort of worked in this area, it's hard to hold in your mind that the circadian system or the body clock, you can think about it separately from sleep, but you can. We can talk about problems of insufficient sleep or sleep debt We can talk about that separately to that whole circadian story that I've just been talking about. And the other thing that happens is that if we try and sleep at the wrong time or if we aren't aren't getting strong cues from the environment about when it's time to sleep, then we won't sleep as well. We will simply have poorer quality sleep, often poorer duration sleep. And so people who who are working shift work have this secondary problem. Apart from the circadian thing of trying to do things at the wrong time, they have the additional problem of trying to do things when sleep-deprived or when they've been experiencing poor quality sleep. 
And so just to talk a bit more about the sleep thing, where we all know, we, we all know just from our experience, that insufficient sleep primes us to have issues with our emotion regulation. You know, we don't cope with stress as well. But, and something that's perhaps more subtle that people don't, um, aren't perhaps so conscious of, when we're a, a little bit sleep deprived, not only do we overreact to stressful things, but we underreact to opportunities. We get the can't be bothered, which of course is start, starting to sound a bit like depression, right? So when we've had a good night's sleep and someone says, hey, let's go down the street and, you know, grab a bite to eat and then see that movie. When we've had a good night's sleep, say, yeah, great. If we haven't had, you know, we've got a bit of sleep then, say, oh, no, maybe, maybe next week. And this is a more subtle emotional consequence of not getting enough sleep is the decrease in what we call positive affect, the desire to do things. It's very obvious that we're more irritable and stuff like that. So there are significant emotion regulation problems when we don't get enough sleep. The other thing that people are very conscious of is they, their ability to think uh, effectively, so problem-solve, plan, those sorts of things Definitely. that are compromised, yep. all that executive functioning stuff. And so we tend to go for simple solutions to things when we're tired, don't we? we? It's hard to juggle a couple of things in your mind at the same time, and so people are very conscious of that with insufficient sleep. But there's also the issue of poor quality sleep. So you might, on shift work, we might be getting, you know, people might say, well, I'm getting, you know, six or seven hours. That should be enough for me. The average person needs about eight hours, but that does differ a lot across people. But they say, look, I feel like I'm getting enough, but I'm still not functioning that well in the daytime. And so it might, might be more of an issue of sleep quality than sleep quantity. And this is where the interaction between sleep and circadian stuff comes in. If we're sleeping at the wrong circadian phase, we may not go through all the sleep stages in the in the uh, a healthy way. We may be skipping out on deep sleep. We may be missing out on REM sleep, the dreaming sleep, which we now know is very important for uh, laying down memories and sorting through memories of uh, emotional experiences. So what's going on during the sleep phase is, you know, there's, there's work we do during the sleep phase, uh, recuperation work and some cognitive work and some emotional work. If we're sleeping at the wrong time, that is the wrong time for the body clock, then we, the, the quality of that sleep may be impaired. So these are the two or three major elements of why you know, it's no surprise that people who are doing shift work uh, experience a whole range of psychological challenges. The, then the other thing I'd add, of course, is that, you know, I've hinted at it, but I haven't said much about it, is there are physiological processes. So people with working shift work have lots of problems with diet and appetite and indigestion and those sorts of things. And that's the same sort of story. They're trying to do those things at the wrong time. And so the body is not uh, well set up and we start to get some symptoms. 
Oh, yeah. Ab- yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I'm doing a fair bit of research on this where yeah. you know, we're quite prone to a lot of digestive issues, yeah. particular, you know, peptic ulcer disease and things like that because, yeah, we've got those clocks happening and even right into our periphery tissues and cells, as you were saying exactly. before, that – you know, so everything slows down during the night, the uh, digestive system slows down, the liver and pancreas is not working normally and we're eating at these times. It just, yeah, it, it becomes a little bit of a vicious cycle. And even with the cognitive function, as you were mentioning, we uh, when we can't think as well. We also, I think that something that we really need to be mindful of is that we often, when we're that tired and exhausted all the time, we can often say and do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do. Mm. And we can even, you know, do this to our, you know, family members Mm. and friends. Um, And it's not intentional. It's just, it's just that we're not at our best. We're not kind of firing on all cylinders because yeah, we're just kind of running on lack of um, sleep. But just leading into, um, you know, the subject of mindfulness, because this is actually starting to gain a bit more attention in mainstream media. And you've done a lot of research on mindfulness and how this can benefit our health. Could you share a little bit uh, more about your research on this, Greg? Yeah, it's probably an exaggeration to say I've done a lot of research on it. Uh, you've done more than the... most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done, yeah, probably more than you, mate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't even know what it is. Yes, uh, yeah. So I've been very interested in it, in it for a long time because as a psychologist, I, I use it with many of my clients. Yeah. I, I use it myself. And now, uh, over the last four or five years, I've been doing more structured research into it. Mindfulness, as you say, is a really popular idea in in the West uh, over the last 20 or so years. And essentially, it's uh, an idea that we borrowed from the East. It has roots in Buddhism and, and other Eastern philosophies. And it's, it's the core idea, that one definition of, of mindfulness that people find very useful is this, it's paying attention to the present moment in a particular way. And that particular way is a non-judgmental way. So one way to think about this is, someone pointed this out to me just recently, said it's a bit like being like a cat. <laughs> It's it's accessing the, the parts part of a human being that is like a cat. That is, all that matters is what is going on for me at the moment, and I deal with it. I deal flexibly with what is going on at the moment in the environment and in myself. I don't get, and the, the opposite of mindfulness is, if you like, is living in the future and you know, worrying about this, how's that going to work out, what am I doing, or living in the past, why did I do that, I, you know, I wish I hadn't said that. But, uh, living in the present moment has a particular quality to it and mindfulness is that state where we are uh, experiencing the present moment very vividly and, as I say, not judging not judging what we're feeling, not judging what thoughts are crossing our mind, not judging what we're perceiving. And so many people who are listening may have had this sort of experience, say, through yoga or meditation, and, and other people have, you know, very vivid experiences of, of being in the present moment. 
you know, when they're listening to music or engaging in their favourite sport, you know, so other phrases that people use as sort of being in the flow, sort of moments of flow, being completely engaged in the present moment. Um, and the, the idea that mindfulness may be good for you uh, first came over to the West uh, when a particular group of clinicians and researchers in the United States started to use it in largely medical settings in terms of management of pain. So you can imagine that, especially for, for chronic pain management, how you engage with the pain has a big impact on how much you suffer. So you can engage with, you know, people who have chronic pain, which we can't, you know, free them from, um, uh, can make their experience much, much worse by, as it were, um, thinking to themselves, this is terrible, I can't cope, my life is ruined by this, versus uh, a more mindful experience of simply being with that experience. And it's very interesting, if you try one of the common mindfulness exercises, is if you do have pain, just to let your mind pay attention to it and notice any changes in the pain. Notice the quality of it. Notice the tone of it. And it's very interesting how powerful it is just to sit with an experience of pain rather than have a sort of verbal elaboration, you know, a story about it. Uh, and these researchers 20 or so years ago discovered this mindfulness, this way of being in the present moment of pain, help people manage that sort of thing. And since then, it's been uh, explored out into many, many physical problems and, of course, psychological problems where mindfulness has been shown to be really very effective as a, a strategy or a therapy for people with anxiety problems, mood problems, and a whole range of dis disorders. It's also been shown to, to uh, help with concentration and, and sort of cognitive functioning generally is uh, sort of, uh, and we're not sure of the mechanism of that, but, but there is evidence that that's the case. So uh, it's kind of uh, flavour of the month in a way in, mm. in psychology and has been for probably, when I say month, probably a decade actually. And we're starting to use it now for serious mental disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, and and because it's already been used for, for many of the more common uh, psychological challenges. But, yeah, the essence of it is this, this Buddhist idea of um, being in, a, in the present moment, paying attention to the present moment and paying attention non-judgmentally to the full array of experiences and perceptions in that present moment. And there's something kind of uh, therapeutic about it. Mm, because I think, uh, it, yeah, you get into this uh, inner peace, I suppose, when you're not worried about, um, yeah, as you mentioned before, about living in the past, that kind of creates that anxiety and living in the future, that obviously brings more stress. And if we're not careful, it can, yeah, lead us down that uh, spiral of heading towards depression. So bringing back into living in the present, and I like how you referred to the cat because, mm. you know, cats really don't care about anyone except for themselves <laughs> exactly. and they just do their own thing. <laughs> exactly. 
Knowing what you know about the body clock and you know mindfulness and everything, would you be able to recommend three things you know for our shift workers that are listening right now that can, that may be able to help them better manage their their health whilst working twenty four seven? And obviously, a, a mindfulness strategy would be one of them. But maybe if you could be a little bit specific for us. Yes. So, I mean, this is a tough question, and I sure. must say that I don't. Uh, consider myself an expert on shift work at all. So, you know, I have more of a theoretical understanding from, the, you know, the body clock perspective and some of the psychological stuff. But, you know, the devil's always in the detail, isn't it? And so I, I wouldn't put myself out as an expert on the challenges of shift work. But so just to say one thing that immediately comes to mind, I was struck by what we said before, that um, one of the, the ways in which shift workers might... Um, uh, generate problems for themselves is when we're tired and, and, and not running, firing on all cylinders, as, as you said, we might actually say and do things which cause trouble in our relationships, for example. Yeah. And so one of the ways in which mindfulness is a very useful technique is just to pay attention to yourself. You know, when you finish your sip work and you walk back in the house Maybe it's, I don't know, it's at 7 o'clock in the morning and some of the, the rest of the family is getting up to, to go to work. Just by being mindful of, well, how am I feeling now as I walk in the door? What thoughts are crossing my mind as I walk in the door? Um, then I might be less prone to react in mm. a productive way to the mm. my son hasn't done his homework or my wife seems to be watching the telly when I thought she was going to be cleaning the kitchen. I, I might have a more, um, uh, I might have more control or might more of a sense of choice over how I'm going to act in those situations rather than react. And that's one of the ways we talk, we talk about mindfulness is it's about by having that present moment focus, that cat-like focus on, on what is really present for me now. The argument goes that we're a better place to act rather than react. Mm. Reaction, which can often cause us trouble, yep. is a problem because we're not actually factoring everything in. You know, we're going off old stories. You know, my son's lazy. That's why he hasn't got, you know, got out of bed yet or da-da-da. You know, I'm hard done by it. That's why blah, blah, blah. When we start to react to these old stories about what's going on, rather than what's actually going on, that's when we can be a bit clumsy and cause problems for ourselves. If we uh, just touch base with ourselves by being mindful as we return into that complex environment of the family home, we might notice, well, I'm tired, I've got some concerns, I've got these negative thoughts, I'd better just be a bit you know, thoughtful and mindful before I make any offers to anyone in this room because they might be coming from an unproductive place. So that's some ideas about how that particular mindfulness strategy might help minimise some of the negative flow-on effects mm. of being uh, someone who works out of sync with their body clock. 
Um, I must say, in terms of the circadian stuff, I can't think, really, I can't think of a simple solution. I mean, uh, my starting point, it really is that it is a really uh, a significant challenge uh, to be working out of sync with your body clock. Um, and I don't know what experts on shift work would say. I suppose, suppose there's a discussion, isn't there, about what particular shifts you're working and what pattern of shifts is more or less challenging to you, right? So um, unpredictable shifts, theoretically, you know, changing shifts, is theoretically more uh, problematic for the body clock than, than is a stable pattern of shift work. Yeah, and I know that There are some people who have a stable pattern, for example, of evening shifts who seem to cope fine. Mm. And you know, there are individual differences in this. And so maybe there are people who've learned, you know, ways of coping and maybe they're, you know, they're naturally night owls anyway because there are individual differences in this. Yeah. And so maybe there are ways people can work out for themselves what their preferred body clock position is and lobby for a shift work schedule that is a better fit to who they are. But I'm sure you know more about that than I would. Yeah, you're, I guess you're referring to the chronotype, yeah. there, Greg, whether you're yeah. an, uh, an owl or a lark. Yeah. I'm definitely not a lark. <laughs> I'm definitely a night owl. So, I've yeah, and look, right. I did so many Looking back now, I just, yeah, I just think, you know, I did so many 3 a.m. starts and I think, how did I do that? You know, I know that my body's naturally in tune to the night shift and yeah. definitely it's the uh, rotating shift work, which I really do think uh, does impact on us mostly. And I think there's room for improvement for from both the shift workers' perspective and the shift working organisation to, uh, you know, implement sort of rosters that are going to be, you know, less uh, yeah. destructive on our health and well-being. Because you know, I, you know, I even know some in in organisations that have these split shifts. So, like, you'll do a shift in the morning for three hours, and then. Are they these broken and then they've got nothing happening during the day and then they come back again for four hours at night. So they're effectively doing like a 12-hour shift mm. even though they're not on shift, mm. but then they'll be back again, mm. you know, in 10 hours' time. And that over time is mm. very fatiguing, but, mm. you know, and it look, it might look all good on paper from a, a rostering perspective, it ticks all the boxes, right. that, you know, from from that perspective. Mm. But realistically, you know, would you want your own daughter, son, mm. father to kind of work that way? Because it's mm. not uh, um, definitely, a yeah, uh, the best way to function. I mean, I, look, I think back now, uh, and this is probably your era, um, you know, when – you know, the we, way we just did the eight-hour shift, you know, the mm. whole concept of split shifts and all this never existed. Mm. Mm. Well, why do they have rotation shifts? That just seems crazy. What, what's the industrial rationale for rotation shifts? Well, I guess it's at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, depending on the company and it's just matching the requirements of an organisation that they need to cover, you know, so many working hours. But I agree with you. I think uh, it's not necessary to, you know, have so many different shifts. I think mm. for me personally, I remember one week I had, uh, mm. in one week I had six different starting times 
Mm. (laughs) And they might not have even been dramatic. They might Mm. have only just been half an hour Mm. or, you know, an hour or or something like this. But, I mean, it just, you know, you go, okay, well, I'm going to bed now. What time do I need to set my alarm clock (laughs) kind Mm. of thing? So, Mm. yeah, it is. It's definitely um, poses challenging uh, challenges for all of us. But I suppose from the getting back with the mindfulness there, Greg, would you, because I don't want people to think that, you know, in order to uh, conduct ourselves in this mindfulness way that we have to envision ourselves sitting on a my, uh, on a mountaintop, cross-legged, <laughs> you know, pr- uh, chanting oms, because that's not what it's about at all. Like I mean, no. people can do this anywhere, anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you, you know, I, I do it all the time, and my clients do. In fact, basically, it's it's not difficult. The, the the technique that most people use, the most commonly used technique, and we're talking now over millennia, people have been using this technique uh-huh. um, of, for becoming mindful, is to pay attention to the breath. Mm. So you literally bring your attention to the air going in and out of your nose and the rising and falling of your chest and you and I could do that now almost as we're speaking really as I'm giving this answer you could be doing this now I'm speaking to a bit of mindfulness of the, at the, of the moment and and we can do it you know as we're walking into a challenging situation mm-hmm. we can do it when we're stuck at the traffic lights we can do it when our Football team loses by a point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something I'm all too familiar with. Um, and, and so, and there are other strategies as well. You know, one of the one of the things that people find is is very useful is, and in fact, one of the phrases that that people often use is that mindfulness is about living from the feet up. So there's paying attention to the weight of your body on your feet if you're standing or if you're walking. It's that, you know, we use the metaphor of grounding ourselves, don't we? We we, Mm. get that with a lot, but it actually is literally uh, a a very useful thing to bring your attention to. If you want to be aware of what's going on in the present, bring your attention to your feet, bring your attention to what it feels like as you take that step, pay attention to the toes and how they feel in the socks. It's very powerful. If people just have a taste of this, I'm sure they'll get what I mean straight away. Uh, it, it's very the, the whole idea of consciously bringing your attention to some feature of the present moment, whether it be your breath or how your feet feel as you take each step or some feature of the environment that is of interest to you, consciously bring your attention to that thing. That is being mindful. Mm. And as you said, that's something that, yeah, we can do any time. Absolutely. Um, and particularly a good time when we feel like we could sort of react in a way that we shouldn't. Might. Exactly. Once we start feeling under stress. And, of course, the more, like any skill, the more that you give this a go, mm. the more you remember to do it, right? So I, I can pretty much guarantee that if people try this, just have a taste of being mindful in the moment, they'll get a sense. It's kind of hard to put words on, actually, but they will have the experience. There's something kind of unusual about bringing your attention non-judgmentally to the present moment. They'll have that experience, but the habit of using that frequently to deal with life and help you cope with challenging things, that 
needs a bit of practice and so remembering to do it, uh, promising yourself that you're going to do it every day, for example. Some people say a good way to learn mindfulness is to, to practice it whenever you're doing tedious chores. So, you know, doing the dishes, hanging the clothes on the line, sweeping the kitchen, making the bed, driving the car, things that you would normally find tedious or arduous or a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. But because you have to do them frequently and it's not your choice to do them, right? Mm. They are, in fact, very useful triggers to say, I'm just going to be mindful for a minute here. And that has two benefits. One is it relieves you of the sense of tedium and boredom. Mm. But secondly, it can build up a bit of a habit of, of calling on mindfulness when, uh, when you've got a challenge. I'll have to try that technique. Um, when I do yeah. the vacuuming, I tend to yeah. put the podcast, um, oh, yeah. so put my ra- uh, radio station on and listening to 80s music to kind of get me going. <laughs> kind of get me going. <laughs> but as a, as a polar opposite to that, uh, I might actually try, yeah, doing something like that. Um, yeah. Well, it's it. interesting you say that actually, Audrey, because um, the mind, people with big beliefs in mindfulness would say, yes, of course, one of the most common things we do to deal with stress and tedium and challenge is distraction, mm. and you just described it. Now, there's nothing wrong with distraction. I'm a big fan of it as a strategy for dealing with life. Mm-hmm. The mindfulness thing is an alternative strategy which we use much less mm. and many people find is a quite refreshing and engaging strategy. Instead of trying to get out of the situation we're in, get into it and see what happens. Mm, love that. That's Yeah, that's Great advice. Awesome, awesome. So I'm just about to wrap up the uh, podcast, Greg, but uh, one of the things I always like to ask my guests is because I'm a bit of a mad traveller and I know that you've just come back from Amsterdam, (laughs) which is a beautiful part of the world. I'm quite fortunate I've been there myself as well. But with um, all your travelling that you've done over the years, do you actually have a favourite travel destination? Lots and lots and lots. Uh, yeah, tough. <laughs> uh, one of my favourites would have to be Vancouver. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. I agree, yeah. Yeah, so let me tell you why. So when I first went to Vancouver, it was about 15 years ago uh-huh. when Australia was in drought. My, my children basically grew up not seeing much rain. We had about a decade of drought. And can you imagine what it would be like to fly from Australia into Vancouver where you can smell the water in the air. (laughs) (laughs) There's huge trees everywhere and mountains with snow at the top. Uh, It was just such a vivid experience of wood and water and uh, such a relief to the parched environment that Australia was going through at that time. Mm. Oh, Erin. Uh, yeah. We we'll love you for, for mentioning that. She's listening on this podcast now, you know, her, her hometown of Vancouver. Because, yeah, yeah I think I've, when I've been lucky, it's uh, when I've gone there, it hasn't actually rained a lot, but it, it is actually renowned for being um, very wet, yeah, for, you know, is. so many days per year. Yeah, it is. But, yeah, I too have been there when it's beautiful weather, but you can just feel this place gets a lot of water. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, it's interesting that you say that. I Canada is – oh, I love Canada. It's just – and Vancouver is one of the first places that I 
went on my travel journey. And so it was a great starting point because it's yeah, just a great, great city and it's on the doorstep, as you mentioned, Absolutely. to all the wonderful Rocky Mountains and so yeah. forth. Yeah. I say, I say to people, uh, Vancouver is culturally like Melbourne but geographically like Sydney. So it's yeah. geographically stunning but yes. culturally very rich like Melbourne is. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Well, look, this has been great talking to you, Greg. Uh, how can um, people find you if they're wanting to learn more about you and your research that you've done in regards to mindfulness and circadian rhythms? I know that you've written a lot of peer-reviewed papers uh, for journals and so yeah. forth. But yeah, so if anybody's listening and they're wanting to kind of learn more about you, where can they go? Yeah. So they go to the Swinburne University website. So University of Melbourne, where I work, yep. um, there, there's a, you know, there, there's all my contact details and where I hang out and what I'm doing and a bunch of videos that I've done on various topics sitting up there as well. So yeah. <sighs> okay, great. I'll have to take a look at that myself. Am yeah. I going to see a few more of you on the drums? Uh, there's a few of me on the drums, but not so many on the Swinburne website. I tend to try and discourage those from going up on the Swinburne website. <laughs> Might not get a promotion if they see too much of that. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Greg. It's been great to get your professional insights and perspective on all things to do with mindfulness uh, and our body clocks, our two really important topics uh, for anyone who happens to work 24-7. It's been great fun talking to you, Audra. Well, that's it for another edition of the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback and there are many ways you can do this via my Facebook page, The Healthy Shift Worker, through my website, healthyshiftworker.com or you can visit The Wellness Couch at thewellnesscouch.com and leave a comment there. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to share it with other shift workers who you think may benefit and you can also leave us a five-star rating in the iTunes store which will help me to spread the Healthy Shift Worker message to shift workers and organisations all around the world. If you'd like access to more free resources, including my newsletter, just visit my website, healthyshiftworker.com, and enter your name and email address there. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Until next time, may you continue to be as healthy as you possibly can be, despite working 24-7. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.